Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for the last hour. We've got you now for an hour of science, and in the virtual studio that I am attached to, uh, good morning to Dr. Linden. How are you? I'm well, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm doing well. Dr. Laura's on the line. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. Good to see you too. And Dr. Ray. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Nice to see you. Yeah. How we, uh, Lyndon, is there some weird, amazing event coming this week? I just looked up the bomb this morning and there was like, whenever the, the millimeters of rain is in the above 10, I start thinking, whoa, big event. Yeah, I saw, I saw that. I think there's some kind of cutoff low, a low-pressure system maybe down at the surface and then up in the middle part of the atmosphere as well that's sort of maybe combining to bring us some super rain. And I heard a bit of snow as well. So mm. if the numbers keep looking positive, maybe we can uh, check, out the, check out the white stuff in the not-too-distant future. Yep, assuming it's still there when we can all exit their homes. Let's uh, jump straight into some news. Dr. Linden, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. So the story that caught my eye this week is about diamonds, big, fat, sparkly diamonds. Now, Dr. Laura, you're a bit of a fan of diamonds. You would know as well the four Cs. We've got cut, colour, clarity and carrot, so the weight. And this study brings in a new C, a fifth C, clues about super deep earthquakes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Someone's been on the (laughs) turps. I spent hours thinking about that one. Thank you very much. Very cute. Earthquakes, most earthquakes that we experience happen in the top kind of 70 kilometres of the Earth's crust and into our mantle, the, the region below the crust. But there are some earthquakes that happen much deeper, 300 up to 500 and 600 kilometres in depth. But nobody really knows why these earthquakes occur and they've They've flummoxed seismologists and geologists for decades because the mechanism that causes our shallow earthquakes, two continental plates kind of scraping against each other, they don't really work at depth because the pressure and the temperature is so high down there that the rocks kind of ooze past each other more than scrape. You know, they're under such intense pressure. So there have been a few theories about why these earthquakes can occur, but nobody's really managed to settle on one. One theory is that water manages to get down to those depths and that kind of um, destabilises the rocks that are down there and causes a tremor to occur. But that theory has largely been dismissed because nobody could explain how water could get down that deep. That's what this study is looking at. This research was published in a new journal from the American Geophysical Union. It was also uh, uh, written about in Science News. And these guys, these researchers from the Carnegie Institute of Science in the US, have used diamonds which form at the depths of these super deep earthquakes. And they have looked at the inclusions inside the diamond, so the little imperfections, the little specks of minerals from surrounding rocks. Now, those minerals contain um, water as well. 
So they've used this information along with the modelling of about 23 subduction zones around the world, so areas where you've got one continental plate kind of moving underneath another one, generally around the ocean regions, to try to find some theories about how the water might get down to such depths. So they have these models have indicated that possibly there are a few ways uh, that water can get down to 300 to 500 and 600 kilometres below the surface of the earth. Largely, maybe the water could be locked inside minerals or it could be dragged down with ocean sediment or the water from the ocean itself could trickle through the rocks and then uh, infiltrate the slabs as they get bent and fractured and moved down below the surface of the earth. But this study, which is uh, the part that's really significant, is that this study has found that no matter how the water gets into the rocks, once the rocks get to about 580 degrees, the water can no longer stay inside the rock, so it has to leach out. And once it does leach out, then that's where you get this instability. And so the, the final part of this research is suggesting that if the rocks are older and colder as they start to move down, then it will take the rocks a lot longer to get to that threshold of 580 degrees. And that will explain how this water can get dragged so far down into the Earth's mantle. And interestingly, once that water is released, not only does it set off these earthquakes, but it also uh, provides the minerals that are required for these diamonds to occur. So the diamonds really do kind of hold the clue. And this is the most significant evidence yet that water can get down so deep into the Earth's mantle and yeah. set off these deep earthquakes. And I love this research because, you know, it's a question that people have been asking for decades. Why does this happen? It's been confusing people. And now we're getting that one step closer uh, using beautiful sparkling diamonds, which yeah. I think is really cool. Diamonds are a fascinating material, especially uh, if you're wearing them and you get them artificially made, folks. Don't, don't buy the real ones. Well, they're all real, but don't buy the ones that are mined, buy the ones that are fabricated. Third of the price much cleaner. Uh, Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? I, I just feel like you've wooed me off my feet. Wow. Dear, let me give you this fabricated diamond. Uh, no, but, <laughs> but it's true. It is amazing. I mean, you, you, it is just carbon. You can make it. It doesn't have to get dug up. Um, so I actually saw this, this really cute article on, from the Proceedings of National Academy of Science on clownfish. And, and I just found this fascinating. Uh, researchers who were studying Percula clownfish in the wild, which is I would say one of the species that I think Nemo is based on. Um, and what they found was when clownfish get their stripes and what the stripes look like a little depends on the type of anemone they grew up in. And so they, they did studies where Percula clownfish like to hang out in Gigantia or Magnifica anemones. And what they found was is that depending on which anemone they were living in, the time at which they got their stripes differed as well as a little bit in their stripe pattern. And what this is an example is, is something called environmental plasticity in, in animals. And, and there are other really cool examples as I was reading about it. Uh, one was that genetically, you will see monarch butterflies of different generations can have completely different patterns based on the, the, the weather of the season they're born in instead of generationally their patterns coming down from one season, one, one season to the next. And, and so Animals do differentiate based on environmental factors. And on the clownfish, they dove a little bit deeper and said, well, why do we think this happens? There's a, a particular hormone that's associated with um, the onset of, of clownfish growing stripes. So in lab, 
they took a, a sister species, the Ocellarius clownfish, which is the other species I think Finding Nemo is based on. And, um, and they did tests where they exposed those baby clownfish to different levels of this particular hormone. And they actually saw differentiation in, 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 in how quickly they got their stripes. So then they went back to the Percula clownfish from the wild and did some genetic testing on them and actually found that the clownfish living in, I think it was the Magnificia anemone, uh, which got their stripes sooner, had a, a higher uh, expression of a gene that related to regulating this, this thyroid hormone that caused them to create stripes. So that the, the anemone environment is not interchangeable. The anemone matters about when and how clownfish get their stripes. And I just, I was thinking, wow, first clownfish, fun. Uh, two, kind of neat about how stripes get there. Um, another great example of environmental plasticity. And I was just thinking, wow, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have even had the capability to understand that level of connecting the genetics of the clownfish to their environment. So all in all, I just thought it was a pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, and nothing swims as cool as a clownfish, let's face it, in terms of... Yes. Uh, well, a hammerhead shark's pretty cool, uh, but for me, at the two ends, I've got the hammerheads and the, clown, the clownfish. Yeah. Just, they're kind of... They're just chilling. It's, they're always chilling. Yeah. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Ray. Uh, Dr. Laura, what do you got for us? Yeah, that's an amazing one about the clownfish. I mean, I just love... Some, some scientists just have the coolest job in the world, like you know, monitoring when clownfish get their stripes. That's amazing. In my study, the researchers got to sit with 375 Labrador and Golden Retriever puppies. <laughs> Isn't that like the happiest lab in the world? So this, this study caught my attention because, you know, I want to be in that lab. Sorry, did you say so, the happiest lab in the world? Bum, laboratory bum. with the happiest Labradors in the world. Anyway, this, this study I thought was super neat because um, it, it actually showed that puppies are born with the genetic ability to understand human communication. And at first blush, you think that, well, that makes sense. You know, we bred dogs to socialize. We know that some breeds have better temperaments than others. We know that we can breed docile versus aggressive foxes. So, of course, there is a genetic ability for, you know, socialization and being social. But what, what wasn't known is that when you think about human gestures like pointing or communicating, you would think that that would be learnt by a puppy because, of course, they're always around humans, right? But in this study, they actually showed for the first time that that's actually genetically hardwired, the ability of puppies to understand basic human gestures. So um, this research was studied was um, at the University of Arizona. It was published this week in Current um, Biology. And they took um, golden retriever and Labrador puppies that were destined to be service dogs. And before they had really had any human contact, this was at eight weeks, they subjected these dogs to a lot of um, different social and cognitive trials. And one was just as simple as, as pointing, finger pointing. When we point at a dog, we want the dog to look. And you think that that might be straightforward, but it's actually quite a complex gesture. If you pointed a chimp, they can't respond to that. And that's our closest, you know, relative, you know, in the mammalian kingdom. So, but puppies, they were hardwired to do it. So puppies, you know, you, you point at something, they can look. So that was one of the tests. Another one was understanding communication. So mammals, eye contact with humans is actually quite rare. But if you were to talk to a puppy with a baby voice, even if they didn't know that they would get a reward because the contact had been limited before that, the puppies would have a fixed gaze on humans for, you know, the average was six seconds. 
And the other um, quality was seeking human assistance. So um, they put boxes boxes in front of puppies. Get the puppies were trying to open the boxes, and the bo- and the puppies would look to the humans to try and help. And this is a real trait that's come from wolves that puppies do. You know, dogs have evolved to want human help. And so what the researchers then did with all these puppies is they assessed um, whether their performance was actually genetic. What was the genetic component? Did it run in litters or pedigrees? And they found, here are the stats, that the 43% in variation was actually genetic. So 43% of the performance was all genetic. And this behavior of pointing or looking to humans, it didn't improve over time. It wasn't learned. It didn't get better from puppies to animals. And so um, it's like we have selected for, you know, super social dogs, just like we have selected for freaking cuteness in dogs. I remember a study came out in PNAS two years ago showing that dogs, as opposed to wolves, have evolved new muscles around their eyes so they can raise their eyebrows in, you know, instilling a nurturing response from humans. So it's just really shown the impact that humans have had on the evolution of domestic dogs. We've had a huge contribution. And so with regards to what we can learn from this, one of course, an obvious one is um, identifying genes associated with behavior. But sort of a sort of rapid impact is that when you're thinking about selecting dogs for um, to be service dogs, like you know guide dogs for the blind or so or so forth, knowing that these characteristics run in litters, and when you put dogs through these training programs, it's well known that half the dogs fail; they don't make it on to be good service dogs. So knowing that it runs in litters, these traits, and that it's not really through training and learning, even though of course some, there's a huge component of that, then you could really pick the right litters um, to be the best possible service dogs. So mm. I thought that was super cute. And one thing I did think is how good would it be if it wasn't, you know, would it have been as good if you didn't pick Labradors or Golden Retrievers? Because you know that they're the best dogs. You know, I've got my Labrador sitting here with me right now, you know, top quality dog. Yeah, maybe the Shih Tzu is not, so uh, not quite as good as uh, <laughs> learning those gestures. It, it is amazing though, because it feels like you're passing on data from one one sort of dog to its its progeny through genetics, which which is a weird thing. It's a weird thing. It's almost sci-fi. I love it. It's good stuff. Well, uh, team, uh, I'm going to let you all go. We have to go and find our. Have to go and find my guests. The first one's in California, so a bit of a long trek to to find her. It's going to be kind of cool. Thanks so much for news, and we will chat to you all again very soon. Great, thanks, Shane. Thanks, guys. Bye, everyone. Bye. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and now we're going to go live to the University of California in Irvine, where we have Dr. Georgia Parkin waiting. Good morning, Georgia. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. How are you? Uh, early evening for you, of course. And <laughs> you're at the, I love the name of the place that you're working in. It's the Institute for Interdisciplinary Salivary Bioscience Research. Yes, it's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? Yeah, We've actually just... uh, shortened it to ISPA. It's a bit <laughs> yeah. easier to get out. <laughs> it kind of almost sounds a bit like, like you're spitting. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of cool. Um, now, you're doing your postdoc over there. So you're from Melbourne originally. You're, yes. And how's that yeah. going at the moment? I mean, you can't come back. It must be a bit tricky. Yeah, it, it has been. Um, the first few months, I think, were definitely the hardest. Um, when I had to make that decision, about whether do I, you know, quit my postdoc and jump on a flight and rush back to Melbourne before the borders close, mm. or do I stick it out and is is lockdown going to um, last a few months or well a few years? years. Or so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so you've stuck it out. How long is the the postdoc period in total? 
Um, my contract at the moment is two years, so it ends in January next year. Um, fingers crossed we get some more funding before then, but uh, yeah, we'll see how things go. Yeah, well, at least you're in a, at the moment anyway, you're in a nice warm, warmer part of the earth, which is good. It's uh, It's been pretty <laughs> chilly here in Melbourne. I can tell you, waiting in those vaccine lines for hours, it's a little chilly if you get a bad day. Um, now, you work in this really interesting area of looking at um, essentially therapeutic lithium levels in patients. Just remind yeah. people, what, what do we use lithium for? Because this is one of those breakthrough drugs that we've been using for a long time, very successfully yes of course so um lithium is used uh, predominantly for bipolar disorder patients but it can also be used for um other reasons such as other mood disorders um adhd um really anything that will help stabilize the mood of, of a patient or an individual hmm. do we do we know what lithium does in the brain or is it just one of those wonder drugs where we're kind of like yep it works keep using it um we're not 100% sure what uh, lithium does or its mechanism of action. So that's something we're hoping to look at, um, hopefully during my, my postdoc period here. Mm. Um, it was really just discovered as a wonder drug um, by accident almost. Yeah. And yeah, went from there. Now, in terms of determining how much is in my system, presumably we need, we need to know this so that we're getting dosing right. Is that, uh, what's happening there? I mean, how do you, I, I have no real feel for how you take lithium or how often you take it. What, what does that look mm -hmm. like? Yeah, so um, those who are on lithium medication generally take one or two doses of lithium in a tablet per day. Um, and it... Hmm, it really depends um, on, well, their symptoms and their age and a number of other factors. Um, and then they're asked to go to a clinic every three to six months if they're on stable lithium uh, medication or if they're in the process of titrating their, their dosage level or they're experiencing some side effects or some variations in mood, they may go in for a blood test more often than three to six months. Mm. And so we... Um, but yes, yeah, so we just work it out by giving people blood tests, how much they've got in their body. Yes, and that, yes I mean, more or less. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting to me because it reminds me a lot of um, the issues around diabetes and insulin and the fact that, you know, you kind of, you know, people test themselves, they prick their fingers all the time and so mm -hmm. forth and they, they test themselves. But, but the administration of the drug is not directly linked to how much you have in your body or how your body's processing it. So you have these people who have vast variations in energy levels and so forth due to mm -hmm. that that problem and this is obviously a, a somewhat different problem requiring blood tests but well that is a blood test as well i suppose that people do with diabetes mm. but um but this can't be administered at home in any way can it the lithium testing like um, the blood not at the moment. um hopefully in the future if all of our research goes to plan um at the moment uh individuals are required to go into a pathology clinic so at any standard hospital and have um their lithium levels measured through a blood test mm. Um, which is, you know, inconvenient for the patient. You can imagine, particularly during COVID lockdown, when everyone's being asked to stay at home, um, it's even harder for them to get into a clinic. Um, so what we're doing at ISPA at the moment is we're looking at um, correlations between saliva and blood lithium levels um, with the hope that in the future we'll be able to measure lithium levels through saliva samples instead of blood. Yeah. Um, Saliva samples 
I mean, they have a number of advantages over blood. Um, they're not as well as established at the moment, unfortunately, but they can be collected at home. So ideally in the future, you should be able to collect a saliva sample at home, drop it off at a lab or mail it into a lab and have the lithium levels measured um, either well before a clinical appointment or perhaps if you're using telehealth, without a, an in-person clinical appointment. Yeah, look, it sounds fascinating. Now, I can imagine saliva levels. Now, these must bring in all sorts of parameters in terms of does it does it depend on, you know, what you've eaten, you know, how much booze you've got in your system? All the, <laughs> like, I mean, I can imagine just the, the complexities because there's so much, there's so much in our saliva, like so much material. Mm. And it's such a hostile environment too of the body. So what, what sort of things do you have to factor in there? Yeah, so as, as I said, that's one of the current uh, disadvantages of saliva collection, but something we're definitely hoping, hoping to work on. Um, compared to blood, which is a well-established measure, and, you know, as I said, pretty much in every pathology clinic or every hospital that you'll go to, um, saliva, the, the effects of food and caffeine and alcohol and sleep on different protein levels or medication levels or analytes in saliva is not as well known. Um, so while we're looking at um, saliva lithium levels, the relationship between saliva and blood lithium levels has actually been looked at since the 1970s and 80s. Wow. Um, so we're not actually the first study to um, consider this study. However, we, uh, we are the first study who has... Um, looked at other factors such as, as you said, caffeine and alcohol and other um, comorbid diagnoses and things like that. Mm. Um, and at the moment, um, our, our research so far, we found that things such as um, smoking status, um, diabetes, um, to name a few, they actually affect the the ratio of lithium in the saliva versus blood. So these things are things that they're going to have to um, take into consideration in the future. Yeah, I suppose it's one of those things where there's a lot of unknowns, but as long as you know what they all are for a particular patient, you might be able mm. to set a baseline and then and then do those yes. measurements for that patient, not comparable to another patient, but for that particular person, as long as their lifestyle doesn't shift significantly, you'll be able to set a baseline and, and do that. Yeah, absolutely. And and you brought up the um, uh, glucose testing earlier. Um, this is something that we're hoping um, in the future to to do with lithium testing as well. So, you know, we could have a point of care device or a device that um, individuals could have at home and measure their own lithium levels either at home or in a clinic without having to go through all the trouble of getting a blood test or sending it to a lab. Um, of course, that would require us to have... Um, standards in place where we say to an individual say um you know you can't measure lithium levels within say half an hour of eating food or yep. you have to measure lithium levels within exactly 12 hours after you take your dose yep. so we really have to standardize um the collection protocol particularly if it's done at home and we're relying on 
on people to do it properly yeah. at home yeah. without supervision. Yeah, I think people would be onto that though, because I know I had a blood test the other week, and it was one of those ones where it was fasting in the. You know, I always book them in the morning so you can fast overnight. But yeah. I was, you know, it was nine thirty. I was getting a bit itchy by nine thirty. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I hadn't had a cup of coffee. It was like, boy, you know, this thing's tough. And anyone who's doing that all the time, I can imagine that would be be hard work. I think I have a friend of mine who um, she looks at tears. And it seems to me as though all these things that our bodies leak are really rich in information. We need to we need to put more research funding into the stuff that our body leaks because, you know, it's all yes. giving us a lot of information. Now, before I let you go, I just wanted to touch on the other thing you're looking at is um, trying for early detection using saliva of Huntington's disease, which is, is fascinating. Yes. So um, this is a little bit of a jump from the lithium study. Mm. Um, so I would try to cover it really briefly. Um, so... Huntington's disease is a uh, genetic neurodegenerative disorder. Um, so individuals, if they have genetic testing, they know whether they're going to get Huntington's disease and develop these symptoms, but they don't quite know when they're going to develop these uh, more debilitating uh, motor symptoms or movement disorders, um, such as involuntary and uncontrollable movement. So what we're looking at in saliva and also in blood is whether we can find any proteins um, whose levels will predict when an individual is going to experience uh, a deterioration or worse symptoms. Um, and then by knowing that, say how many years they have until their symptoms are going to get worse, um, we'll be able to either tell them or a cl clinician so that they can plan for their future. Um, and also we can consider um, future, say, clinical trials for um, treatment of Huntington's disease by telling individuals, hey, you're probably going to have worse symptoms in the next few mm -hmm. years. You would be a good candidate to, to try this treatment. Yeah. I think that early detection, like with many neurological disorders, the, especially the ones where there's degradation over time, is, is such a, a key element. Georgia, it's been fantastic talking to you. I'm, I'm sure there's people here in Melbourne who are probably listening who miss you greatly. Um, we look forward to getting you back here at some stage when things are returning to normal. But until then, enjoy the sunshine there in California and have a great time at uh, the University of California in Irvine. And good luck with the work. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Georgia. Everyone, that was Dr. Georgia Parkin from the Institute of Interdisciplinary Library Bioscience Research at the University of California. We're going to take a break now, and we'll be back in just a few moments with our second guest. We're going to be talking about galaxies in just a moment. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and GoGo. -Go. We have our second guest on the line now. It is Dr. Nick Scott. He's from the Sydney Institute of Astronomy and the School of Physics at the University of Sydney. Welcome to Einstein and GoGo, -Go, Nick. Thanks for having me, Shane. Good to have a Sydney sider on the line. You guys are all safe and, you know, putting building a wall. You guys building a wall to Victoria as that started? Uh, I think we're starting to think about it, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully not a very big one we can jump over. Now, you've been doing some fascinating work. I, I always find it interesting when we talk about, um, we talk about you know, in astronomy, especially the distance stuff, and we talk about galaxies. I mean, that was where I sort of started my research career myself. So huge interest there. But what we don't hear a lot about is our own galaxy and our understanding of our own galaxy. And, and this is something that I suppose, I mean, you can, you can explain why this is difficult, but I suppose because we're in it, it's hard to sort of take a, an external view, Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The way I like to kind of explain this is imagine you're in your house and you've never been allowed out of it. You've you know, had really unfortunate circumstances or something. And someone rings you up and asks you, oh, what does the outside of your house look like? 
And that's a really hard question to answer. You can do some things, you know, you know how many stories it is, you know how many windows are on the front, you know, you know, you can pace it and roughly figure out how big it is, but you've got no idea what color it is or what the roof's made of or any of those things. So, you know, the internal perspective lets you look at some details really well but there's just other things that are much much harder to answer yeah i think you just triggered half of melbourne because we're all locked in. <laughs> <laughs> that is true yeah hopefully that houses haven't changed color in the last week and a half yeah i hope so um now but you found um I, I suppose the real question around this is is our galaxy like other galaxies and we can see you know literally I think it's hundreds of millions of galaxies, I guess, is the count at the moment. You know, we've kind of lost count of how many we can see, but there's a lot. Uh, But the question is, are they like ours? And you've been looking at one in particular that may have similar features to ours. Yeah, that's right. So the the galaxy we've looked at is uh, has the catchy name of UGC 10738. Very cool. Uh, Fortunately, all the galaxies, as you said, there's so many of them, we kind of can't give them interesting names anymore. Um, And we picked this galaxy because it's sort of um, basic properties, you know, roughly how many stars it has, roughly how big it is, are quite similar to the Milky Way. And then we've observed this with some of the largest telescopes in the world. And then we really dug into the detail of this galaxy to do, you know, a, a very, very detailed comparison to our own Milky Way. Hmm. Now, what is it about the Milky Way that's unusual? Why? Why do we? I mean, I understand like uh, humans are good at this. Like Earth is special, our solar system special, our galaxy is special, and, and this this kind of trickles on, I suppose. But are there elements of our galaxy that are special relative to those hundreds of millions we're typically looking at? Yeah. So, in some ways, as I said, our galaxy is fairly ordinary. It's a, a spiral galaxy or a disk galaxy, and this is really easy to see if you go outside yourself and look up at the sky, mm. and there's this band of stars, right? And what you're seeing there is the what we call the thin disk of the Milky Way. Uh, thin because yeah, it's much much flatter than it is extended. What? But our galaxy also has another disk-like structure, which we call the thick disk. Again, astronomers not great with names. Uh, <laughs> the thick disk is essentially just thicker than the thin disk. Now, you can't see this one with your eyes. It has many fewer stars, so it's much, much fainter. But this sort of double disk structure is really interesting. And these two disks also contain different kinds of stars as well. The chemical makeup of the stars in the thin and thick disk is very different. And this sort of double disk structure um, is something, at least until, well, uh, very recently, uh, we thought was quite unusual amongst spiral galaxies. Mm. And my understanding from that is that that tells us something about the origin or, or how we, if we look back at the history of our galaxy and say, how did it have this double disk structure, that, that difference in stars and so forth gives us an idea, yeah? Yeah, that's right. So um, astronomers like to try and build galaxies in computer simulations. And obviously, the Milky Way has been a big focus. It's our galaxy, as you said, it's special, at least in that sense. Um, so it's been one that people have tried to reproduce a lot. And it turns out it's been very difficult to reproduce this double disk structure. And about the only way they've managed to do it previously is if our galaxy had a substantial collision about 9 billion years ago with a sort of what we'd call a medium-sized galaxy. Mm. And that kind of puts a, a little bit of a pause, if you like, in the formation of our galaxy. Early on in its life, it was forming this thick disk, and it got hit by something, took a bit of kind of a rest, if you like, to get its act back together. And then later on in its life, it grew this thin disk. Um, but what that suggests is if you need this specific kind of event happening many billions of years ago, that shouldn't be happening to most galaxies, right? Just, you know, on average, most galaxies will not be hit by another galaxy 9 billion years ago. So in that sense, it suggests that 
or at least our previous theories suggested our Milky Way might have had a relatively unusual history in that sense. But now you've looked out and you've found another one that basically looks Absolutely, similar. Yeah. 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 So this first galaxy we looked at, we had a sample of about 10 um, that we were looking at, but this was the very first one we, uh, we decided to analyze. Uh, and we found exactly the same structure. It has this thick and thin disk structure and the chemical uh, sort of signatures of the stars in those two disks is exactly the same as we find in the Milky Way. And that really challenges this idea of kind of a, an unusual cause um, for this disk structure. If you find it in, you know, the very first other galaxy we look at that we're able to make this observation, and mm. it's probably coming from a much more sort of common mechanism that occurs to most galaxies. Yeah. Did you shoot off a couple of emails at that point to some of your theoretical colleagues and say, uh, hello, <laughs> you may have to revisit some of those those models because we're starting to find other examples of this very unusual circumstance? Yeah, we absolutely did. Uh, and in fact, we um, organized a meeting late last year when we had um, the first hints of this coming out to really bring together um, kind of uh, astronomers who work predominantly on the Milky Way and those of us who work on other galaxies to really kind of explore the other ideas. And there are some, I should say, emerging theories. Um, they've been a little sort of less emphasized um, until recently, but I think our results will really bring those to the fore that argue for a more kind of natural um more peaceful kind of way of forming these thin and thick disk structures. Yeah, very cool. Now, before I let you go, tell us, um, is the telescope you're using the optical or is it the other wavelengths and whereabouts is it located? Uh, it's in the optical. Um, for this particular study, we use something called the Very Large Telescope, uh, which is technically four telescopes, but we use one of them. Uh, and that's uh, over in Chile, um, which is probably the best place in the world to be doing astronomy. So the world's largest telescopes from the best place in the world to be doing astronomy yeah. uh, would need to get this result. Very cool. And will you get any advantages when we put up the James Webb telescope? Even I know that's outside the visible, it's into the infrared. Will that help with any of these studies at all? It'll definitely let us push this out to even more distant galaxies and look back at uh, galaxies in the past. So one of the big things in my field that James Webb will be doing is let us study galaxies not at the present day, but as they were billions of years ago. So rather than trying to kind of figure out how what events led to a galaxy's present day, you can just look back in time and see what was happening three, four, seven, ten billion years ago. Mm, very cool. Well, Nick, look, it's great that we're learning more about our own house. Um, I realize it is, a, it is a hard thing to do, and I think anyone who, you know, if you look up at the sky on a, on a dark night a long way from the city, it's, it's hard not to see you know this strange structure but if you try and then map it out and work out where it came from that's a whole different bag of snakes i think so well done on the work um we'll, we'll keep a close eye on this and hopefully we'll get some some new theoretical models coming through soon that give us a better idea of how our galaxy actually formed which is a cool thing that we we don't know that in some sense it's it's kind of cool but thanks so much for joining us on einstein and go go nick Thank you for having me. Folks, uh, that was Dr. Nick Scott uh, from the School of Physics in the University of Sydney. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment, uh, getting even closer to Melbourne with our next guest from Deakin University. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gergo. I'm Dr. Shane. Now, we started in the US, we went to Sydney, and now we are a bit close to the home. I think our next guest is in Geelong somewhere. We have Professor Felice Jacker on the line. She's the Director of Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University. Uh, good morning, madam. How are you going? Hello. It's great to have you on the line. I think we've we've done this before over the years, haven't we? It's been a few years. I think so. <laughs> it sounds terrible to say I've lost track, but I think I, I certainly I have a very long involvement with three triple R that goes back to my writer's twenties, and uh, not all of it related to science. 
<laughs> right as 20s. I think I started at Triple O in my right as 20s and uh, just never never managed to leave and never want to leave either. It's a good place. But um, now you work in an area which I, I haven't, you know, I'm learning new terms this week. I learned uh, I went one term this week that I, I wish I hadn't, um, which was, was it around where, uh, was it something about aerosols from toilets and um, I, fe- <laughs> fecal aerosols, I think, was the term I learned this week. And I was like, oh God, I really didn't want to learn that term. But anyway, it's a good one to know. But you, in a more positive sense, you work on what's called nutritional psychiatry. Now, yeah, unpack that for us because these are these are things that I, you know, I suspect um, most people think is quite separated. But uh, we're learning more and more about this um, connection between what we eat and how we feel. So, uh, unpack what nutritional psychiatry is. Well, really, it's it's the study and application of um, the knowledge of how what we eat intersects with our mental and brain health and. So it was interesting when I first came into psychiatry research, which was quite accidental about 15 years ago, to realise that, as you've alluded to, unlike the rest of medicine, it was really a nutrition-free zone. You mm. know, everything was focused on synapses and neurons in the brain and everything that happened above the neck, basically, and nothing at all that happened below the neck other than, oh, dear, that antipsychotic medication has made you gain 20 kilograms, oh, well. Right. Um, so... Um, Bringing those two together, around the time, sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot uh, increasing understanding that really we're not just a brain and a body that's separate. We're a whole interconnected organism and all of these things, such as the immune system, um, just as one example, uh, are closely connected with our mental and brain health. And nutrition affects so many of the systems that also affect mental and brain health. So it made sense to kind of put them together. Now, one of the things I've found, and and we've had some guests over the last year uh, come and talk to us about this, but one of the things I find amazing is that the standard of food that is offered in many of our hospitals, which, and look, my my theory here is that it's so bad, it helps you want to leave. And that's that's the reason for it. But it it seems to me as though, you know, our, our mental health is such a corner stone of recovery from any illness and yet we often see scenarios where the food is just inedible or people just don't want it or it turns up you know you get cold toast or whatever else why is there not a greater focus on this as part of that more holistic view of recovery and so forth for for people in our hospital systems is it, i mean i'm guessing it's just money but you know Look, I think it is money, but it also reflects just the wider environment outside of hospitals, and that's our what we call the obesogenic food system. And now our big industrialised food system across the world costs the globe upwards of $12 trillion a year, and that's because of the detrimental impact on um, global health and also the environment. And, in fact, poor diet is now the leading cause of illness and early death around the world, and this is because... The industrialisation, the poor quality of the food that is mass-produced, it's cheap, it's heavily um, processed, it's heavily marketed, it's ubiquitous, it's, you know, you can't get away from it. And hospitals are just a reflection of that. But, you know, when you go to an inpatient psychiatric unit and you see these young people who are so unwell and they're already on medications that destroy their metabolism and, their, you know, many aspects of their physical health, and then they're given, um, you know, sweet muffins for morning tea, sweet mm. muffins for afternoon tea, white bread sandwiches, and then they are allowed to Uber in, you know, McDonald's or whatever. Um, it, it's really kind of distressing because you're going, you're sending all the wrong messages. You're not helping them to get better. 
But there is a real movement away from that, and I'm really excited to be part of that. But um, one example I would give is a fantastic inpatient unit up on the Sunshine Coast that a really dear friend of mine, Dr Sam Manger, who has a, a terrific podcast, he and a couple of very passionate psychiatrists have over a two- or three-year period just transformed the whole unit such that there's no junk food in there. Everyone gets out for exercise every day, regardless whether it's skateboarding, walking, riding a bike, whatever it is, and this includes the staff. Mm. Um, it, the the people who are staying there to, to get supported, to get well, are um, supported to also learn how to cook and how to shop, and they prepare their own incredible meals. And I saw a photo of one the other day, and they call it Psych and Easy, and it was just this whole table of just the most beautiful fresh fruits and veggies and legumes, et cetera, et cetera. So it is tr- changing. Um, and it's being reflected now in the new clinical guidelines for the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatry, a big pushover in the UK as well. So I think it is changing. But these things are very slow to change and money is a big part of that. Yeah. I, I suppose there's an element of convincing that many, many in your, your um, situation and others have to do where I, I'm guessing a lot of people don't feel that the impact of their diet is as big as it actually is on their mood and other things. I mean, do, do you have trouble um, getting that message across? Because, you know, there are some crappy foods that sometimes when you're feeling bad, you kind of crave and you, you want to eat. And it feels like the opposite of what, what we need to do. exactly right. And in that way, it's analogous, I guess, to cigarettes or drinking too much wine or something. The short-term impact is the opposite of the long-term mm. Drink wine because you're feeling bad and it gives you this lift and you feel happy, but then the next day you feel worse. And, and it's similar with, with junk and unhealthy foods. But what we really look at is the long-term impact and the long-term relationship as well as the short-term impact, the really quite profound impact of changing people's diets and watching to see what happens. And, of course, what we've shown is that it can have a major impact on people even with quite severe clinical depression um, and, uh, you know, uh, some work's been done in um, with people with serious mental illnesses and even people with intellectual disabilities, very serious mental illnesses, are able to make really positive changes to their diet if they're just given that right bit of support. And so that's what we're doing now. Although we've done a lot of what we call efficacy trials, so randomised control trials to say, yes, if you change diet, you will improve someone's mental health, their depressive symptoms. But now we've moved to these, uh, and we've just started, like literally in the last couple of weeks, these large-scale what we call effectiveness trials. So in the real world, if we randomly assign patients with mental health problems to get either standard care, which is seeing a psychologist, or diet and exercise support, are they at least equivalent to each other? Mm. Um, you know, it's called a non-inferiority trial, so that we can start to answer that question, okay, if I'm a clinician out in the real world, am I going to get as much bang for my buck or possibly more because we think it's going to be very cost-effective by helping people to improve their diet and exercise or sending them to a psychologist? Hopefully in the future it's not going to be an either-or, but mm. for the 
point of science, we need to, to separate them to start with. Yeah, I think there's a real big element there of, in terms of cost, depending on your socioeconomic status and what you can afford as well. I mean, one of the things that I find interesting is often good quality foods are generally cheaper than poor quality foods, and the marketing kind of gets us. Um, but not everyone has access to psychologists, and even with the mental health care plans and so forth under Medicare, they're, they're still not free necessarily and so you know the exercise cheap but good food slash as an alternative presumably is is something that is is across various socioeconomic status um, groups as well well that's right and with our smiles trial which is you know our very famous (laughs) smiles trial which was the first randomized controlled trial to take people with moderate to severe clinical depression randomly assign them to get either social support which we know is helpful for Mm. people with depression or dietary support just to make those small positive improvements to their diet over three months. And we saw a really profound impact on the mental health of people who got the dietary support. But we also did, A, a detailed cost analysis, and we showed that the diet we were advocating was actually cheaper than the junk food diet of people when they came into the study. And then, B, we did a a formal economic evaluation, and it showed that there was an approximate $3,000 per person cost saving for those in the dietary group, even when you factored in the cost of the dietitian, because they lost less time out of role, they saw other health practitioners less often, because it was having this global benefit to their, not just their mental health, their physical health, their functioning, it was very, very cost effective. So this Mm. is trials that we're doing now have got those economic evaluations built into it, because you need to be able to say the government's Right, you need to be able to give Medicare item numbers for dietitians and exercise physiologists for people with mental health problems presenting in primary care or wherever um, because we know it's going to save you money. Yeah, it's amazing to me because we still have what I would refer to as a repair care model of medicine rather than mm. a prevention care model. And all of the things that you just talked about, you know, dietitians, physiotherapists, ex- exercise um, medicine specialists are all in that category of prevention care in the same way that, you know, we use often use dentists in prevention care or optometrists. And all of these things, in my view, are where, you know, Medicare money needs to be directed because, you know, you, you don't want people entering the healthcare system for repair care you want prevention care i know and what a concept you know preventing rather than <laughs> treating and, and you know i was the inaugural president of the alliance the australian alliance for the prevention of mental disorders we wrote about this we talked about this we talked to politicians we made rec- policy recommendation you get nowhere because the cost of prevention is all up front and the benefits mm. are way off future and the politicians don't give a rats about that so it's intensely frustrating and so short-sighted because the costs of treatment after the horse has bolted are just massive but we do know that there's an enormous amount that could be done around food policy around town planning around planning laws so that communities can say no to mcdonald's in their backyards these sorts of things Um, And, of course, education in schools, there's a huge number of things that can be done to prevent so many of these chronic problems happening in the future. When we think about food, obviously, marketing is one of them. Why Mm. is it that, you know, sporting clubs are able to be sponsored by Kentucky Fried? Why is it that we still have so much advertising for junk food on telly or on bus shelters, etc.? Then you make it more expensive, then you make it less accessible, then you target public knowledge and information. There's so many things that could be done to improve um, 
our physical and, and dietary behaviours. I think one of the big issues is that the, all the public health messaging around food for decades now has been around obesity and body weight. And I think that that's been entirely counterproductive and stigmatising. Body weight is very genetically determined. If you're in an environment where you have unlimited access to food, your body is going to find its own weight that's very genetically determined. Um, most people cannot maintain the calorie restriction needed to lose weight and keep it off over the long term, so they give up and they think, well, mm. if eating foods is meant to make me thinner and it's not, I'm just going to eat whatever, I'm going to eat the chips. Whereas people know that this is going to affect their gut and their brain and their, their mental health and their ability to learn and remember really fast, that's a much more concrete thing that I think leverages behaviour change. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can really eat some healthy things that will necess won't necessarily make you lose weight but make you maintain a, a healthy weight and but make mm. you a lot you know a lot fitter and everything uh, across the board so i think that's that's definitely yeah. the angle we need to take felice it's fantastic talking to you you know the the show coming up after hours of course is uh with cam and and matt uh, called eat it so they're going to be talking all about food so <laughs> but they all talk about fantastic food so felice thanks so much for chatting to us today it's always good to to have you on triple r and no doubt we'll, we'll do it again good luck with the ongoing work and this campaign to to make us all healthier and live longer and have happier lives Thank you, Shane. It was a great pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Professor Felice Jacob, folks, uh, the Director of the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University. Now, we are going to have to hand over in just a second to the team from Eat It. I can see, uh, I can see Matt Stebbin there. Yep, they're ready to go. Uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Go-Go. We are going to be back in again next Sunday. If you are trying to get vaccinated, folks, keep, uh, keep up the push there. You may have to stand in the line for a while, but it's well worth doing. I did it last weekend. I would say a good way to do it is uh, if you can't get through on the hotline, actually follow the Twitter feeds of some of the locations. So Western Health, for example, has a good Twitter feed, and they do do tell you when the walk-in service is available or not. And I've actually found that a little bit more reliable than any other website because they seem to um, put that up in, in good time. So if you're looking for a place to get vaccinated, check some of those Twitter feeds. I think it's the best way to shorten your wait time and get it done as quickly as possible, assuming you have access. Melbourne, uh, hang in there. We'll be out of this soon. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again next week. Have a great Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.